Imagine you picked up the most important book in the world, a book with words that can transform hearts. Now, imagine it was full of highlights and notes in the margin, and you could see how this book has transformed someone's heart. This is the Notable Podcast. These are discussions of twin pastors who share their underlining and highlighting with you. This is Season 8, a podcast on Genesis 12 through 25 and the life of Abraham. Well, listeners of the Notable Podcast, um, we're um, hours of podcasting into uh, this this narrative as we cover the the teaching here in life of of Abraham. And hours? It's it's gotta be like we're we're like twelve hours into this, maybe. Yeah, and and we've had to really pare ourselves back. At least I have <laughs> a number of occasions. Uh, trying to keep it tight. Um, but here we are. Uh, we said last time with Isaac um, and the Akedah that we had really reached the peak. Uh, but Moses thinks that even though we have peaked out, that uh, the story isn't really finished and it's really not tied up. And you really don't know Abraham the way you need to know Abraham until you have two final stories uh, that perform uh, a lot more than just as an epilogue uh, on his life. And here we have a massive, massive account um, in terms of size um, and quantity, but I hope by the end of this that you're also gonna see that it's also in terms of quality, (laughs) that this isn't, a minor report uh, in the life of Abraham. But I think we have a little bit of work to do to get people there. I, I think you're right. So welcome. It, if you're new to the Notable Podcast, it's the Notable Podcast, not because it's notable, but because we're making, just sharing what's in the margins of our hearts and the margins of our Bibles. And um, we're going to be diving into Genesis chapter 23. Um, verses 1 to 20, we're going to take the whole thing. And um, we're just going to go through this account a little bit at a time. You could you could call this um, a very strange uh, death notice. This is a death notice. This is a, an obituary, if we want to use that term. <laughs> but it is, a, it is a distinctly Christian um, obituary. And it's actually, even within the biblical genre of of death notice, it has um, some very distinctive and elongated, you might say, features about it. And so we're just going to go just a little bit at a time. And so, Jonathan, I thought what we could do is just read verses one and two. And and then I think we're going to talk for like half an hour. about maybe longer on just those two verses, but this is Genesis 23, 1 and 2. It's a very simple report, but um, in it, I, I kind of say this as a, as a prayer to God that, oh my God, um, thank you for this. Thank you for this. And 
it's just it's such explosive power in these verses. So it says, Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Two verses. Yeah, so, so, so Timothy, <laughs> I think we can break down. We just, it's like you said, two verses. Uh, but I think we can break down the the two verses into three distinct categories. Uh, first of all, in the first verse and a half, you do get an obituary notice. So we want to stop and, and pause over that. Um, and then you, uh, you get the death story. So we find out as much as Moses wants us to know about how Sarah died. And then finally, we get a mourning scene. And so each, each three of those categories, I think we're going to see, is uh, worth pausing over. And the first one is the, uh, the obituary notice. And the, before I notice anything about the notice, uh, I want to uh, just make um, the very obvious observation that, uh, biblically obvious, I should say, that Sarah is the only woman in the Bible uh, to get an obituary notice. And uh, so we're noticing the notice before we do anything else. Well, at yeah. least to this extent, Jonathan, like there's reports of, of women dying in the Bible, but the, I think what's, what's special about it is that, like to be more specific, we get how old she was when she died and that yeah, it's is an obituary absolutely unique so i guess like to to define an obituary it's we we find that they're dead and then how long they lived <laughs> maybe that's the simplest definition of it right and so just to to, to make this come alive then ruth doesn't get uh, eve doesn't get a an obituary and hannah doesn't get an obituary and uh, Ruth doesn't get an obituary, and um, even Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, doesn't get an obituary, but Sarah gets an obituary. And I think the very best we can do on this, uh, why this is, is, is to follow Luther, uh, who thought that she gets an obituary notice uh, because God, well, Peter considers her to be the mother of all believers. So she is um, that significant um, to women and to men that the Lord really elevates her um, to the status of really the mother of all believers. And, and uh, so we're noticing um, the obituary notice. She's yeah, a very, she's a, very, she's very, a very big deal. She's, a, she's the matriarch, <laughs> to put it that way. Abraham and Sarah. And there's now, just to notice what's in the obituary notice, we get two things. The first is um, her age. And uh, we'll say something about that. And then we want to say something about um, where, she's, uh, where she died. So um, first of all, she's, uh, she dies at 127. And interestingly enough, the Hebrew always writes out uh, these kinds of um, reports of, of years. 
So in the Hebrew, it says 120 and seven. And so it all, it all, it's really lengthened. It's, it's a, a long way of reporting years. And what's really interesting is the ancient commentators, um, just because the obituary is so short, and, and, and it is, it's quite astoundingly short. We, we don't get any, um, you know, we get no reports about uh, Sarah's famous chocolate chip cookies or her presidency of the Kiwanis Club or anything like that. It's agonizingly short. Um, and so people, um, ancient interpreters, um, arguably they made something out of nothing um, with the obituary, and they would they would read the Hebrew, which says she died at 120, and they came up with this really interesting interpretation um, that says that the obituary is trying to communicate <laughs> that she was as beautiful at 100 as she was at the age of 20. So she, see, <laughs> the ancient interpreters wanted to come to this conclusion that she aged um, apparently really, really well. Um, and that Moses is suggesting that here. There's no evidence to that effect. Uh, but it, this is a way of us just noticing uh, really how short this obituary notice really is. Yeah, thanks for that. So I actually, I hadn't read that, Jonathan. That's an interesting little thing. Like, she, in other words, she died like Moses did and his eyes weren't dimmed and, and his, his vigor um hadn't left his body but he still but he still died and then we're told geographically where she did die what's left out is like um uh, we're not told that she gave birth to isaac obviously that happened earlier but usually in an you know, obituary at least for a male you would find out about who his who his son would be um that's left out and we're told that she lived she died in the promised land which is significant there near Hebrew and Hebron, we'll come back to that. And then the, from there, like the, the obituary expands and goes to uh, a, a place um, that the previous obituaries never did. We're gonna at least find out next that um, the circumstances for her death, I don't, I don't think that we're told how she died, that that's left to, uh, mystery, but we're told that um, one thing about the circumstances of her death, and it's that Abraham wasn't there. He has to make um, either a short or long journey. We're not told how long or short it was, but he has to go to her to uh, to mourn. And you know, some people think that he was maybe off in in, in Beersheba. Maybe it was sheep shearing season, conducting business or something like that. Um, I, I, it would be going way too far to suggest that they're living separate lives. <laughs> Certainly not. And you can't arrive at that conclusion based on the emotion that Abraham expresses. And, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But um, he has to, it, this isn't, this isn't one of those fairy tale endings. It's not it's not that, after, you know, like those couples that um, are able to hold hands uh, as, after 50 years of, of marriage and one ushers the other um, in, the, in the eternal life. It's more like that 
um, iconic COVID photo that that where the couple's hands on the window and they're they're separated and there's so much tragedy and, and pain in that. And um, I think Abraham's gonna gonna feel that deeply. We'll see that. But um, it's a significant report from the Holy Spirit. They yeah, weren't together. It, it's hard. It, it's hard when you when you realize that because the text says Abraham came, um, and then we're going to talk about the morning scene. And so the Holy Spirit does make it clear that Abraham was gone. And I think I think a sensitive reader there is going to at least at least in my case. Uh, I had to work through my own thoughts and feelings about that. Like one of my first reactions to that was like, how, why was he gone? Like, um, didn't he know that maybe she wasn't well or like what happened? And then um, I had to work through that. And I arrived at the same place he did based on the morning scene that it, it, it couldn't have been that Abraham knew and left anyway that she was near death if something happened that um created a rupture that that uh made it so that he wasn't able to be there and and we so we don't know much about the way that sarah died uh but we do know that much and and i don't that is not insignificant for us as christians there's a there's a christian uh song that has lyrics that i haven't forgotten uh and i wish i knew i I tried googling it i couldn't find it but there's a christian song that talks about how death interrupts and that's that's the language there that that death interrupts and and it's always stuck with me because it's reminded me that that death is never convenient it's never um nicely timed it's not expected and and what so often happens um, um, even in even in Christians Christian lives, even in Abraham's life, is that you do not get one last goodbye, and you don't get one last hug, and you don't get one last conversation where you can button everything up nicely. And I have to believe that uh, because I've talked to him, you know, that that there's Christians listening to this who are thinking about that. Like there's one last conversation you wish you could have had, you didn't get to have it. And uh, that's that's part of like the angst of of life in this world is that it, this world it does include death, um, and it calls for eternity. I want to say that on the, on the one hand, it calls for eternity, but on the other hand, it also helps us breathe. You know, um, it's important that here we see the father of believers, the the original blessed man. You know, the Lord uh, promised and blessing. The original blessed man does not receive this perfect buttoned up and and it's and it's the it's a reminder for all of us um that the lord isn't singling us out when we miss a flight when we miss a conversation when we don't quite have everything buttoned up in a relationship just the way we hope that's the way death is and life is in this world and that's exactly right and and that pain i part there's so much pain that goes into the the rest of the verse. It, it says that Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to to weep over her. And I guess I just wanted to say that 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 description, this this mourning scene, is is the first of its kind in the Bible. Like we don't 
we don't get a report of Adam um, mourning over Eve or vice versa or anything like that. We we usually get a report of years of offspring and the fact that they they died. Um, and here it, for the first time in Holy Scripture, we see um, bitter mourning. And we you can actually hear if you listen closely and sensitively to the word here. This is um this is audible. This is this is a this is a great cry. This is um, uh, weeping. And if you so you got to hear that deep deep down. You also have to notice like the positionality of his body. Um, he is like it's not just over her in the sense of um, this is uh, emotionally. This is actually location. This is location. So he you have to see him um cradling her dead body in his arms like we're we're invited to do that and he's he's not standing maybe he's on his knees maybe he's sitting and and the tears and the cries are are coming down to us here thousands of years later and we know that because the next verse says because verse three then abraham rose so um and, and and he rose from beside his dead his his dead wife and and so you have to th- this scene is very evocative it's it's very evocative it's something that we're meant to hear and and to see and it and it opens up tremendous space i'd say for grieving i maybe you want to talk more about the the text and what we're given there jonathan otherwise you know i want to talk about what this means for us, I think it. I think it has great significance. No, to to put it into um, a collo- colloquial saying today, uh, what we would say about Abraham is that he lost it. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah, and it. the like the narrative, the Hebrew narrative is is an, it's he's inviting our senses to get involved, like to he, he's inviting us to peer. Uh, visually over this weeping man and also to open up our ears and hear his cries. Like this is a broken, devastated, grieving husband. He, you know, that's all that he could do was just hold on to her and cry. Right. And so here we have the Holy Spirit giving this image to us for our meditation and, uh, I, I think I, like you, have a whole lot that I want to say about it, but uh, I'll let you go first. <laughs> You're going to let me go first. Well, I'll just give one thing, and then if you want to build on that or, or you know, add add another thing to think about. But, you know, I think that this is, um, this opens up space where previous scripture hadn't for healthy grieving whether it's for a spouse or um, another close family member or, or friend that, uh, you know, some, some Bible commentators are really uh, they, uh, critical of, of Abraham here. Look at him. He's grieving just like an unbeliever, they'll say. Uh, I don't read the text that way. I, 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 don't, I don't read this as um, something negative that Abraham did. Instead, what I see, and we're going to prove it to you later in this podcast, 
is that this is a man who who is clinging to God's promises, but also properly um, grieving, not like the rest of the world, but 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 absolutely um, grieving, and that that opens up space for in in our lives to lament, to be broken, to lose it. And it is not sinful. It is not wrong. In fact, it's more than okay. That is where um, hope begins again in the resurrection. It's where healing begins. It's where moving back into life um, after loss uh, starts. Yeah, so and I think us pausing over this is really appropriate. If I hear, if I've heard uh, a common refrain from people who are mourning somebody they've lost, it's this. People will say, you know, I really shouldn't be this sad right now. I, I'm being selfish, they say, because what I, I should really just be happy that my loved one is in, in heaven right now. And clearly that is not Abraham's take on this thing. He's, you know... Clearly, he's not saying I'm not. I should. I'm not going to be sad. I. I. Or, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be sad, or something like that, because Sarah's in heaven. He is expressing himself very freely, uh, very publicly, and um, he doesn't. He didn't. He doesn't think this is being selfish at all. And uh, not to be too provocative with this, but uh, to be a little pushy with this. Uh, what I what I think is sad when it comes to um, people who lose a loved one uh, is is not being sad. <laughs> that's 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 what's really wrong. And sometimes I even hear that praise. You know, like people people will praise it um, and see it as courage in others. They'll say so and so is handling this so well. You know, I would, I would, if that had happened to me, I would be such a mess, but they are so put together right now. They're handling, and they look at it um, as a form of courage and they almost lionize um, this kind of um, hardness against grieving um, and count it as virtue. And they say it, it's some kind of uh, courage. And I want to say three things about that. Uh, first of all, just to say, in support of this idea that this isn't courage at all. Um, it is either A, it's one of three things, not courage, it's it's one of these three things. It's either A, that person is uh, grieving in a way you don't know. You're not, you're not aware of it, maybe they're doing it in private, um, and that's probably the majority of what's happening um, is somebody uh, is, is grieving in another context. Um, so be aware of that. They're probably not keeping it together as well as you think. <laughs> it's just happening in another place. And it's important to realize that as we care for that person. Uh, and then and then B, um, it can't be courage uh, because if they're really not sad, like if they really if they really do have it together, um, that that's not courage because what's happening there is as um Many people have observed before me that we're sad about losing someone to the proportion that we love them. And so um, if we're not really that sad, the truth is it's because we didn't care that much. And that's actually really sad. Um, so 
hopefully it's not that category or or at C. And I think that there's a lot of this sympathy is that is that people just simply don't know how to grieve anymore. Our, we we live in a culture um, that wants to be happy, 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 happy. Such a therapeutic culture. If we're not happy, something's really wrong with us. And we don't we don't know how to grieve. Now Christians do clearly Christians do, um, but we have lost the tradition of uh, too much of the tradition of lament and grieving. Um, that that Christianity does offer us here, and so we do get a model here to be of, of Abraham grieving, um, not hopelessly. So we're we're going to see that, like he does. We we want to notice that he doesn't merely grieve; he also rises, and so he does get on with his life um, really very quickly here. Well, and so I wanted we want to, to notice that. I wanted I wanted to give handles on on what it means for a Christian to grieve. And I, we, a lot of what's in the secular discourse today is that um, it's time to move on. There's, a, there's this idea that we move on. And um, he, I, I wanna, there's nothing biblical about that idea. Like I can't find it in the scriptures anyway, anywhere. And, and this scene actually, I think it opens up in, to us possibilities for, for real grief that is the Christian grief and hopeful grief. And it also gives us handles, I think, to talk about what Christians do. And because I love what, what happens next is he, he weeps over her. And like I talked about how that's positionality, but then it says Abraham rose. And I, and I love that he doesn't, he doesn't, um, move on from Sarah. And in fact, you know, I, this, this is a little bit of speculation and, and he, he, you know, he, he wasn't, he made some marital mistakes earlier that we saw, like when they invited Hagar and, and became sort of this, this kind of crude and gross um, threesome, but they quickly sent her packing and he stops being a part of his sexual life and, and, and part of his marriage very quickly. Um, it, it, what we see, it, you know, just track the, the rest of his life. We're going to find out our, in, in chapter 25 that he does remarry and then he ends up with all these concubines and, 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 and things like that. Whereas before he never had that, he never had that during his marriage to, to Sarah. And which, which makes me think that, um, he never, he never did really move on from Sarah. He, you know, in a sinful way, he tries to fill a gap and avoid that, that, that Sarah left. So um, I think that uh, he's not the perfect example of a griever. I, I, I'd say that, but I would, I would also say that the the language here that like the the spirit filled language is that you get up you get up you you, you don't leave them behind you you get up from it trusting in the promises of the resurrection but more on that later i that was something that it just kind of left me thinking that maybe the better language isn't moving on it's it's getting up hopefully in the resurrection yeah so you don't Right, right, right. That insightful commentary. I, I hadn't thought about that. Thank you for that, Timothy. And then 
what we have next is uh, a lengthy um, report of uh, of a burial plot purchase, <laughs> and it really is that. Uh, oh, that oh, wait, don't so boring. Don't, don't move on to that yet. You can't move on to that yet. What do you I got? got one more. I got one more thing I want to say oh, about good. what what the weeping scene means um, for people. There is, it's it doesn't only it not only invites us to hopeful and resurrection filled um, Christian grieving. It also fills us with incredible wisdom, and and we got to get this. And Ecclesiastes said this: it it is better to go to the house of mourning mm -hmm. than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. The living should take this to heart. So maybe our listeners, Jonathan, aren't grieving right now. They have gotten up. They have gotten up because we've all, we've all lost loved ones and we get up. We never move on. We get, we get up. But, but I, it, this is a call to wisdom. This is a call to wisdom. Like when you see uh, a man it, hunched over his wife in, in great pain like this, I think it it calls all of us to realize that this, this is going to happen to us one day. And maybe again. And um, that invites us. I mean, this does so many things to me spiritually and emotionally. But one of the things that, that it does is that it invites me to hug my wife a little bit closer, to um, spend time with my kids, and, and to prioritize those relationships because they do not last forever. That, that is the wisdom that we're invited into by going to the house of mourning. I at least wanted to say that. Yeah. Mm. That's powerful. Hmm. So then we do get this uh, report of uh, this scene of Abraham buying a burial plot. Um, I think it's worth reading this uh, as a chunk. Uh, the text does come to us all together. And uh, then I want to suggest a way that we can move forward through the text, un unpacking it. So. Here's what happened. So Abraham rises. We talked about that. And he said, now I'm in verse four, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, sir, listen to us. You're mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. So he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to, the, to his city gate, No, my lord, he said. Listen to me, I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. 
Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field, accept it for me so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, listen to me, my lord, the land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is it between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the field, was deeded to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterward, Abraham buried his wife, Sarah, in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. And there you have it. Uh, there's Moses' report. So I want to <laughs> I want to suggest a way we can move through this uh, story here, Timothy, in a way that I hope is helpful. And that is to to tell the story um, in the way that uh, Aristotle once said stories can be broken up, uh, that a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So uh, we do have a lot of text here. And uh, if we follow Aristotle's model, we can look at the beginning of the story, and we can look at the middle of the story, and then we can look at the end of the story. And the beginning of the story um, really starts in verse 4, um, where we find out what the opening tension is. And the opening tension is what Abraham names. Um, he says, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Now, I, we're going to make a much broader application of this. And, and, and the writer of the Hebrews is going to make an even broader application of this. He picks up this language, um, this exilic language, we could call it language of exile. Uh, and really pushes that language forward. And, and so Abraham does give a, a testimony here of his uh, traveling, um, uh, unlanded, if I could use that term, status. Um, he's a, he's a to, to, to use legal language that has a little bit of baggage um, today. Um, he's a resident alien. That's what he is. He's a resident alien. And because he's a resident alien, um, legally, he does not have um, the right to purchase land. That has to be granted to him. He does not have the right. And so he's recognized, this is the beginning of the story. He says, I, I recognize I'm a foreigner and a stranger here. I don't have the right um, to uh, buy deeded property here, um, but, but can you sell me some property here? And that's the beginning of the story. International yeah. land law is what we got going yeah. on. Yeah. So, Jonathan, I'm I'm a little bit upstream for you, you about the beginning of the story, but thank thank you for like introducing the tension of the plot. Like I said, I'm a little bit upstream, and I just want to comment on the on the 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 existence of the story at all for a second. This is um, this is a very strange. This is very strange. Like um, we are going to get some very uh, strange, surprising, astounding, um, almost mind-numbingly boring 
uh, details about a real estate transaction. <laughs> this is like, um, this is nobody does this. <laughs> not not um, in modern day culture or in in secular or biblical uh, literature. No nobody's nobody's like, let me tell you about the contract details and all the haggling that my agent did and and what my lawyer, if you're a lawyer, state um, for real estate transactions, what they what they did for me. What they say is I I bought a I bought a burial plot or I bought a new house or or something like that. So um this is um we want to win some applications and some understanding about why why this is here. Uh but you're right, the inter, the introductory um tension and we'll uncover this more in, in a little bit is he needs a burial plot and he's got nowhere to put her her dead body as the text says and what becomes obvious right away is he's not going back to um where he came from yeah and even even there timothy like you um you got into it like uh it's inconceivable like i I don't mean to press on on anybody's um uh, modern day sensibilities by saying this, but it's apparently inconceivable to Abraham to just burn her body up um, and be done with it uh, or to um, transport it to another location or anything like that. Um, he is uh, adamant that she's going to be buried um, on a property that uh, he would own. And so um, that's that's significant to this story. Well, yeah, and Jonathan, you know, we could do a little apologetic too on um, the holiness and the sacredness of of the human um, body. It, this is this is a step below, a, a huge step below. But when my when my when my dog died, um, I uh, you know what do you do? How do you dispose of the body? And even that language is, shows that it's a pet, you know. But uh, I couldn't, in New York City, you can just bag it up and they'll take it in the trash. That's what you can do. I, I learned that. And um, I couldn't. I couldn't. So I took him to the local vet, his vet, and um, paid him $50. And I kind of think that then they put him in the trash. <laughs> but I felt better about it. Like I, I felt, I felt better about it. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't do it. I paid someone else to do it. But like, um, I, I think burial plots. Well, maybe I shouldn't opine about burial plots for pets. I won't. I won't. I won't do that. But um, it is a sign of of the sacredness of, of, of humanity and the fact that um, we believe that there's more that we don't just, uh, I don't know, take, take our, our loved ones who have died and bag them up, so to say, like he's, he's gonna, he's gonna do something more with, with her body. Right. And, and this is where like, um, 
I've gotten questions as a pastor, uh, or or even like I've had people say to me, Pastor, I wish you would have done more teaching on this before this happened, because um, the culture um, is swiftly evolving. As we move into a post-Christian America, uh, people are treating bodies in a very different manner. I actually went and interviewed um, when I was in South Carolina, a whole bunch of funeral directors about this. And, and um, at any rate, the way we treat the human body, both in life and in death, um, does reflect what we believe about it. And while we don't want to be legalistic about um, things that aren't, uh, God doesn't explicitly tell us to do in scripture, um, here Abraham does give a witness um, to what he believes about the human body, um, even in death, <laughs> which is really um, really significant here. Um, and so that's the beginning of the story. We, we, it's as scintillating as international land law on one hand, but on the other hand, um, some incredibly profound, like um, theological significance to this, to this action, um, which is part of the reason why we get it. But then you, what we, what we can do is we can move into the, we can move into the middle of the story. And I want to, uh, before I do that, uh, Timothy just mentioned that uh, a, a caveat here. And my caveat here would be that um, these, this text is actually hotly debated by the scholars. And the reason why it's hotly debated is because we don't know um, all of the cultural context uh, in which this story sits. And so um, should we read it um, against more of a Canaanite background, a Hittite background, what? And uh, so it makes it a little bit difficult to track the dialogue. Uh, and um, what I'm going to do in instead of uh, moving into all those details, other people have done that uh, more uh, adequately than I ever could. Uh, I want to just give you the, you know, my best interpretation of what's going on um, and, and just help people understand um, the the dialogue here. So the, the first little bit of dialogue, the way that I read it, um, it goes like this. Abraham does ask for uh, a burial uh, site. And uh, the Hittites say back to him as a group, we notice we're, we're dealing with them communally right now, that uh, they say, sir, listen to us, you're a mighty prince among us. Uh, there's some debate there, whether they are uh, buttering his bread a little bit too much, you know, uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, was it because Abraham was really that well-respected? You're a prince among us, you're incredible, we love you, or... Did they really honor him that way because he was such a man of God? Um, that's a that's a question for me. At any rate, uh, they say, bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. So none of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. And so and so Abraham says, uh, let, you know, uh, I, I really would like some property. And they say uh, they say you can you can borrow some of ours, which is kind of like which is kind of like saying, uh, I would like to buy your car. I really need a car. And then you say back to me, well, you can borrow it. <laughs> it's not really yours and it can be commandeered back at any time. Right. 
you seem to want me to weigh in. I agree with you. <laughs> so then, so, okay. So then the, we're still really in the middle of the story. And uh, Abraham goes back at it. Uh, and he, he's, so he, bow, he bows down before the people of the land, the Hittites. We could talk more about that. Let's see if we do. <laughs> I'm not going to right now. And he said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf. Uh, I'm going to pause right there and say, this is really smart negotiating. He wasn't getting anywhere with the group. And so what he does is he singles out one person in the group. So he's he got he got stonewalled, basically, um, is one way you can read it. And uh, so he he says, OK, I'm going to try something else. Can you talk to Zophar, uh, Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf? Um He's got this site I'd really like. It's called the Cave of Manapila. And, it, and it's even at the end of the field, which is uh, you know, a clear way of saying, look, I'm not going to have to trespass across anybody else's property. It's right over there. No big deal. Look, um, would you ask him to sell it to me for the full price uh, of the burial site um, among you? Um, and so he's trying to get, he's trying to do anything possible to get some traction on this purchase. So then um, uh, th he says, no, my Lord, listen to me. I give it to you. I give you the cave that is in it. That is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury, bury your dead. So Ephron comes back and, you know, you know, Timothy, I don't know how you read this. Is this just negotiating? I I don't I'm not quite so certain about it. I I do read it a little bit more cynically. Could be just Ephron doing um, respectful um, ancient Near East Oriental um, negotiating. Um, I I don't see it that way. Uh, Ephron is offering here a land grant in his in his verbiage, and anybody who knows anything about legal contracts back then knows that a land grant can be taken back. There's no deed in court, um, no nothing. So if Abraham accepts this land grant, sure, I'll take it. Um, Ephron's family at any time could have taken it back. So this isn't a real option. It's not, how generous Ephron, right? But not really. Like he could have taken it back at uh, at any at any point and 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 I'll, I'll stop right there and say that's the middle of the story right there abraham's well, getting stopped in every at every point and i i think jonathan like this is an interesting time to just stop and reflect even and reflect hermeneutically and what what you always have to do when you read the scriptures is you you read the scriptures either up or down, like the the action of the story. You read it up or down. In other words, you can you can read it um, giving. You can read it up and say, "Wow, look at the generosity of um, the Hittites here. They are just willing to give and give and give." And it, but Abraham is so insistent; he's got to own it. And you kind of read the Hittites up, and you read Abraham down. Or you read the Hittites down and, and, and read them as saying just stonewalling and um, being oppositional and saying, oh, uh, but doing it very oh so politely, oh so politely. Um, and, and really, you 
one of the things I always struggle with is what is the role of the eighth commandment in hermeneutics? And as you read the scriptures, like how do you take people's actions in the kindest possible way? And should you do that when you're interpreting the scriptures? But I just, I, I don't have an answer to that, but I, I just want to notice that you can read th this text, this, this um, negotiating faith is all the scholars agree it's com it's ambiguous like we 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 cannot sort of um grasp it whether to read it up or down yeah there's what's in the the problem that we're dealing with uh, let me illustrate the problem and talk about the problem for a second and then talk about why um it's at least interesting to consider the, the story downward the problem is that um, cultural codes, which we're walking into here, uh, if we were negotiating in uh, modern day America, we would get all, we get all the cultural codes. We know when somebody's slamming us or when somebody's, um, you know, uh, putting up roadblocks and things like that, because we have, we know all the cultural codes. We don't have the cultural codes. Uh, so it's hard for us to, to, to read um, these interactions, all the subtext you might say, underneath all this stuff. But one, one scholar um, makes a pretty convincing case that what you have here and is, um, in part of what you have here is, uh, here is Abraham, who is, ironically, in God's, in God's view, he is not just the prince of the land, he is its king. <laughs> God had deeded the whole thing to him. We know that. He promised it to him. And here's Abraham at the end of his life, at a particularly vulnerable moment in his life. And the, and the poor guy can't even get one little piece of the land to lay his dead wife's body. And uh, so one scholar points out that here is here's a story about a threat to God's promise of the land. And will it be overcome? And will Abraham keep believing? Uh, it, it's it, again, it begins to, to finish up the story of Abraham. What when there's all these other nations on the land, how is it possibly going to become his? Um, and he he can't even he can't even get a place for his family in death, Timothy. This was it's the struggle here, right? And so I think there's um, at least it's it's at least interesting to consider that. It, it is, and I think I think at this point, you know, we've we've said enough about the ambiguity of the kind of this transactional and. Um, Regateandos, like, I, sorry, that's a Spanish word, but like, I guess it'd be bargaining in English. Sometimes I, my brain goes into, into Spanish mode. But um, that's what we have here. And then the close of the story is, um, I think, a little bit less ambiguous. Abraham is able to buy the land, but only at what one scholar called at a king's ransom, which Abraham is happy to pay. So um, 
it would be uh, verse 16 and 17. Abraham agreed to Ephraim's terms and weighed out for him the price he'd paid in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the current weight among the merchants. So Ephraim's field and Machpelah near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees, which is an interesting detail, within the borders of the field was deeded to Abraham as his property. So he is able to close on, <laughs> on the property. A lot of people, like, I don't know what you're laughing about, but a lot of people look at the, <laughs> the price of the land and that there is a purchase price for the hill of Samaria it, later in, in one of the historical books. And they compare the the amount, the, the kilograms, so to speak, of the, the silver that's paid. And, and when they do that, um, a little bit of math, and you, you can do that yourself, what we find here is that Abraham was able to buy a, a little teeny piece of land for an exorbitant price. It would be kind of like, buying a, a little plot of land in, say, Nebraska for, I don't know, um, like $1.5 million or something like that. And then the United States, 100 years later, purchases all of the Louisiana purchase where the, the land is contained for, what was it, $15 million. And so it's just, um, this is what some of the scholarship does with it. So uh, what I, one thing I just want to notice, and I don't want to get too bound up in this, but this is exactly how the world is. The world cloaks its greed and virtue. You know, it's fine. Charge whatever you want. Like a thing's worth whatever. How, what do people always say? A thing's worth whatever somebody will pay, right? And, and then they say, as long as somebody will pay it, like it's, it's fine, right? Like you can bilk somebody. Um, if you got somebody like over the barrel, like stick it to them, right? Like you, you know what that's called? It's called price gouging. Right. Everybody knows. Everybody knows it's immoral, and that's and that's what um that's what Efron does here. He price gouges this very vulnerable man who had to. He knew he had him over the barrel. Yeah. And so that's what I was laughing about. Like Efron goes, he goes. Uh, 400 shekels of silver, please. But what is that between you and me? And if, you know, Abraham, like Abraham, uh, who know, he was so vulnerable and sad in this moment. He must have had to bite his tongue. I don't know. Uh, but if I would have been standing there, I would have had to bite my tongue too, because in my head, I would have been like, what is that between you and me? I would have said uh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> This is ridiculous. You know, you're trying to make me buy a pencil for 75 bucks. Like this is way. Um, anyway, Abraham was over a barrel. And so he does it. He does uh, pay it. He buries his wife. Um, he's, it, we, we, we notice all of the legal language here. We should notice all the legal language. He does lock this down. And uh, does that finally by burying his wife there. And uh, now we got to talk about why the Lord cares about this so much. Do you want to start into that or do you want me to? 
Well, one one thing one thing that I want to want to say. Uh, let me do this. Let me do this, and then you can you can interrupt. I I got a little bit of a soliloquy here, and I I apologize for that, but I I do think it's 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 necessary. One this here's an observation about American Christianity. I don't know how far this is spread. This is the observation about American Christianity. It's what I know best. I've been an American Christian my whole life. Um, one observation that I have about American Christianity is that um, by their language, hopefully not by what they actually believe, but by their language, American Christians seem to think that the ultimate hope of a Christian is to die and go to heaven. <laughs> That's what I hear. I hear that you know all the time. You, you, the ultimate hope of the Christian uh, is that you die and go to heaven. Uh, so the you, Christian dies, and then the Christian goes to heaven. Uh, and sometimes I'll even I'll even hear American Christians say that that's they'll sum up the gospel that way. The 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 gospel is that Jesus died for you, uh, so that you can die uh, and go to heaven. And so American Christians will even go that far. And so what, here's the first thing I want to do with that. Uh, the first thing I want to do with that is affirm um, that uh, dying and going to heaven is a truth of Christianity. It's a truth of Christianity. Uh, we would call it a penultimate truth of Christianity, it's a, but it's absolutely a truth of Christianity. And so... We we get or this. You might call it like an intermediate truth because, like, that's how the theologians and the dogmaticians talk about it. Like, this is the intermediate state, but it is not the final state of of the of the believer. Yeah, the the Bible. What's just listen to this? Like the Bible, not using that language actually. Uh, says uh, we have two Bible verses that do teach about what we call the intermediate state. Uh, the intermediate state is that what happens to the Christian uh, between their death uh, and the resurrection when Christ comes again. And we have two passages that describe what happens to the Christian in that intermediate state. Uh, one time, Jesus said, uh, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So that word today indicates that Jesus is talking about the intermediate state, so that the thief on the cross, um, you could rightly say that he died and went to heaven. Now, that's not exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said he, that, he, that he would die and go to paradise. Uh, but I, I think we would connect the two concepts together. And then Paul um, talked about what would happen um, when and if he died. He said it was it, that would be a better state. Uh, he said it would be better to be with Christ. That's what he talked about. He, he didn't he didn't call that heaven either. He said he said it's being with Christ. And so Paul thought that when he died, that he was going to heaven. So we have uh, two verses that taught that that established the truth of the intermediate state that a, that a Christian dies then. And goes to heaven, but it's interesting and telling that we actually only have two clear verses in the entire Bible that talk about that. 
which should tell us something that is it that is a hope of Christianity. It is not the hope of of Christianity. Um, really, something else is. And Jesus, Jesus told us what it was. Jesus told us that the ultimate hope of the Christian is that we will have a new heaven over our heads and a new earth under our feet, and we will be resurrected from the dead, living with him in a new creation. That's what he taught. And so I want to be clear with this. Um, who taught Who taught that um, somebody dies and goes to heaven ultimately? And that's the ultimate state of a person, not Jesus Christ. That was Plato. <laughs> that was a Greek philosopher who taught that, not Jesus Christ. The ultimate the ultimate state, the ultimate hope of the Christian is that you rise, not that you die, but that you rise from death. See, it's the opposite. <laughs> you rise from death with a new body and you live in a new creation. And I, 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 there, there's a lot that we could say about like the, the um, nascent Gnosticism of, of of modernism and and how that influences the church and also its ministries. Like we um, often di divorce um, people's physical realities as as the church when um, thinking about their care. Like we're the church becomes utterly and only concerned with um, there's you know, their souls, that's what we talk about, their souls, as if that's the only thing about a person that matters, and we just need to get them up in heaven one day, and, and so that has implications, like that, it's just huge ramifications, but I want to talk more about, I don't know if you're, you're ready for me to do this, but I want to talk more about what this means for, for Abraham and for us, is, is that Abraham was believing that God's best promises um, happen post-mortem. So I want to I want to consider this with everybody. Like God had given to Abraham already way back in chapter 12 when he started this thing. He said, You're going to be a blessing for all nations. You're um, you're and, and you're going to be granted this land. And the truth of the matter is that in death. Abraham owned a tiny little cave and a little land with trees on it. That's it. That's, that's all he had when he died. He also had a son who was not yet going to be the one that's going to bless all nations. So what I'm saying is that in life, in, in a sense, God gave to Abraham what we would say is like a daily bread. And when he died, he died, like the book of Hebrews says, he died believing that God's best promises were still coming. That God's best promises were in Jesus Christ. That God's best promises were that he really would inherit the land. That he would rise up with, not, with his wife and with his own body to 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 reign in in the promised land and and so he he buries sarah there as a kind of anchor <laughs> he he really does drop an anchor here in god's promises 
in a way that there's no take backs, like, or the very difficult ones, like you'd have to exhume your beloved wife to, to do a take back. And, and it's not something that's, that's on his mind. Yeah. So if I, if I could be a little provocative and I don't mind doing that, people, uh, can be charitable to me and interpret my uh, words in the best possible way, be a little provocative to get people to think about this. After Sarah died, Abraham did not rise from beside her dead body and say, well, that's it. You know, God has kept all of his promises to Sarah. It's over. You know, she died and went to heaven. That's not what he did. (laughs) What he did was he rose and then he said, I want to buy a burial plot. And they said, well, let you borrow one. And uh, he said, no, I really want to buy one. And they said, we'll give you a land grant. And, grant. And, and Abraham said, no, I really want to buy one. And they said, we'll pay a bazillion dollars for it. I'm being a little hyperbolic. And Abraham said, deal. And what he did was, he's like you said, I love the, laying, the metaphor of anchor. Uh, you could say, uh, here's another one, that he stuck a flag in the ground and he said, look, um, here's where Sarah and I are going to wait it out. And we are going to wait for our great Lord to come and raise us from the dead. Um, And he here lays claim to that life. He lays claim for that to that life. And I would even argue um, for a second that that is why he buries her. That's why he buries her. It's it's the same reason why we bury Jesus. If I, we we come to church. Uh, Orthodox Christians come to church, and every Sunday, what do Orthodox Christians do? We say that Jesus uh, was crucified, died, and buried. We say it every single Sunday. And sometimes I worry uh, that uh, Christians think that the reason why we note uh, Jesus' burial uh, is uh, so that we all know that Jesus really died. And, and if we think, I know what that is. I know why we say that. So we know he really died. And if we say that, then we're only halfway there. Because it, it does mean, burial does mean you really died. You don't bury a person unless they really died. But you also bury. Well, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Oh, great. But. Um, there's those, there's those stories, you know. <laughs> yeah, you have the, the the other side of this that uh, why do we bury things? You know, why do we bury things? So um, we have um, uh, my daughter and I watch a, a Netflix show, um, and it's called uh, Pirate Gold of of Adak Island. And so we have this show where uh, they go to this uh, island in one of the Alaska, one of the Alaskan islands. And um, there's these pirates that came and buried all this gold. But the difficulty is also um, a bunch of live munitions were buried on this island as well. And so the exciting thing is you don't know if they're digging up uh, a bomb or, or gold. And at any rate, why did the pirates bury um, the gold? Because they wanted it back later. And why does Fido bury a bone? Because he wants to chew on it later. And why do you bury an acorn? Because you want it back in a new form called an oak tree. And 
Why did we bury Jesus? And why did Abraham bury Sarah? In hope. That's right. That's right. I got I got one more application for people, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, and I, it, so we we I kind of just said that God's best promises are 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 post mortem. Um, I think this is an evaluative tool for prioritizing what we do in life. And I think one of the questions that I posed to my church when I was taking them through this is, is um, what has post-mortem value? And it, I asked that question because Abraham makes an incredible investment in post-mortem hope. It, it, it's all, his legacy, his legacy, and, and he, he spent great amount of money doing this, was in the resurrection of, of and, and the promise of, of life. And, and so that's a great evaluative tool. Like what, what is it that we are trying to do with our kids? Does it matter? Does it matter post-mortem in a post-mortem world if they can juggle the soccer ball? Does it, does it matter if they got good grades? And the answer to that is no. It, it has no post-mortem value whatsoever. So how can we invest in resurrection life with our kids, but not only, like in, in our marriages, in our, in, in our own spiritual life? Like does it, if it doesn't have post-mortem value, then it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It just matters that it gets reprioritized and, and put in the right order. I, I, and I think you're down the right path. I, I'm with you that. Like this text, we do live in the present. And I think it has certain applications for people who are dealing with death right now and uh, implications. And I, I think those are clear. Uh, but it also has um, implications for those of us who are living our lives right now. And what does it what does it look like for us to believe that through Jesus Christ we have a a, a post mortem existence, a post mortem resurrection life? And I I think it means repenting of two um, very similar but different spiritual attitudes. Um, I think there's two main kind of people who are struggling to believe in poor small in life. Um, I call them chasers and grabbers. <laughs> um, you're a chaser if you're trying to have your glorious life now and you're trying to you know get your that perfect future now. And so I, I think a chaser somebody's you, you're always looking for instead of living in the present as a gift. You're always looking forward to some future perfect existence. You, when you're single, you want to get married. When you're in school, you want to graduate. When you have a job, you want to retire. When um, when you have kids, you want to have grandkids. And uh, when you're single, you want to get married. And so you're always chasing. You're chasing, you're chasing, you're chasing. Um, and you're trying to get to, in this life, um, that glorious, perfect future, whatever it is. And so that's one one way you can you can um, not believe in the perfect uh, postmodern future. 
Or on the other hand, you can be a grabber. You can say, you know, I get it. The future isn't going to be great. Um, I'm just going to die here. Uh, and so you become a grabber. And instead of trying to locate um, your life, uh, your, your future perfect life in a future here, you try to grab onto it in the present. And these kind of people, if you're a grabber, um, you, you have a hard time being in committed relationships. You're going to have a hard time being in a committed job because your relationships aren't perfect and um, and your job isn't perfect, and, and you're gonna you're gonna struggle um, to um, live in an imperfect life because you want it now. You want fun. You want exciting. You want pleasure now um, because you don't believe you have any of that coming later. And this is this is a text that can confront us with that and say, um, turn to Jesus. He has he uh, put your plant your flag in the ground. Anchor your soul in a, in a post-mortem future. And when we do that, um, we can live, as you say, the most productive lives for Christ now that do add up to a per perfect future. We can be committed to imperfect relationships. We can give our best to give a witness to Christ in the moment. And we can work through hurting moments, um, believing that um, there will be no hurt later. If you are